IFM's annual international conference brings the latest medical research on topics including mast cell activation syndrome. Join IFM and the functional medicine community June 4th and 5th for an online event at a special price. Visit aic.ifm.org for more information. On this episode of Pathways to Wellbeing, Dr. Greg Plotnikoff will explore a topic that's been the subject of an increasing amount of research lately, mast cell activation. So oftentimes, these are patients that require practitioners, like IFM practitioners, who can think in multi-systems, multi-dimensions at the same time, and not just focus on a single pill uh, as the answer for things. We'll discuss how the functional medicine approach can help recognize when hyperactive mast cells may be contributing to a patient's dysfunction and how we can begin to address this complex issue. Dr. Plotnikoff, we're so excited to hear your perspective and how you've been working with patients. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. This is such an important topic for every IFM practitioner. Um, so I'm, I, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, I absolutely agree. And I thought to kick off our conversation on mast cells, we should do some exploration of their biological purpose. I feel like mast cells have been villainized a bit, and we have to understand that they do serve a purpose. Can you give us a primer on mast cells and how and when they are appropriately activated? Oh my goodness. Well, this is such a, a villainized is such a, a nice term because yes, they are actually friends or foes. And most of us in our education probably heard that they were about as boring as basophils. But in fact, actually, they play a really important role in both innate and adaptive immunity and um, are behind multiple protective things on our behalf, ranging from everything from wound healing to um, the list goes, goes on and on. And so, you know, so allergies and our response to infections and, and more, um, they're, they're gonna be very pivotal for our host defense and, um, and clearly play a role in everything which is termed allergic. Um, but you know, the viruses, the fungi, the parasites, the molds, all these things are all going to be um, in the realm of appropriate mast cell response. Now, I like thinking about mast cells as sentinels. They're there on our borders with the outside world, seeking to protect us. And it's kind of like icebergs, saber-toothed tigers, smoke. They're there to detect um, problems and, uh, and to alert us. Every mast cell looks a little bit like a pepperoni pizza. And this is important because Mast cells have nothing to do with yachting or boating. They has to do with their misunderstanding um, when first described in 1879. The um, person who first um, described these thought every pepperoni was a little bit of nourishment for other cells. And therefore, um, going to Greek or Latin for nursing, nourishment, he called it a breast cell a mast cell, like mastitis or mastectomy. Um, but actually within those pepperonis are over 200 key mediators, um, ranging from things like amines, like 
histamine, a really important uh, concept, uh, but proteases like tryptase and chymase and cytokines like um, interleukins and tumor necrosis factor alpha and the chemokines and the echinocytes, those leukotrienes and prostaglandins and heparin and growth factors, this goes on and on. There's a lot that they can do and ideally they're there to protect us. Well, I very much appreciate your use and skill in giving us these visualizations to help us conceptualize this really complex process. Yes, well, it's, I tell, I'm, I'm trying to describe this to patients. It's best to use metaphors, in my experience. So I talk kind of simplistically. So I said, okay, uh, you know, just like, all right, iceberg, okay, right, release the pepperonis. <laughs> you know, and I tell people when the pepperonis are released, what we call degranulation, you know, three things happen. One is gates open that are normally closed. Fluid goes where it doesn't normally, uh, uh, isn't normally found. So like runny eyes, runny nose, swelling, these are all mast cell related concerns. Second thing is a call goes out. Hey, immune system, we need some help over here. And that is literally, you're kind of inviting the immune system um, to the area when it arrives, activating it, rolling out the initial inflammatory response, which of course is a healing response. The challenge is so it rolls out and, hey, we've been at this for a while. Where's the off switch? Can't find it. Okay, keep going. And that's where it becomes a dysfunction and where people are inappropriately symptomatic and where some rebalancing is required. And that, we, we're, that type of um, clinical state tends to be quite vexing for all practitioners and certainly for every patient and their families and their friends and extended uh, on out. But that's where we get a chronic multi-organ, multi-system disease of abnormal activation um, with inflammatory, allergic, and multiple other complications. Thank you for giving us this um, contrast and comparing between a normal event that's part of our immune functioning and then what we might call mast cell activation syndrome, which really describes this clinical state when these cells are being chronically triggered. Just to zone in on this a little bit further, can you describe to us how might mast cell activation become hyperactive? Why is that clinically problematic? Well, it's clinically problematic when um, we think of the body perceiving that uh, rightly or wrongly, that there are a lot of saber-toothed tigers in the area or icebergs or forest fires or whatever, um, that the threshold for activity may go down. And again, the body thinking that this is protective. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about triggering, it's very important to think about triggering for uh, this constellation of symptoms that can range from cutaneous flushing to chronic pain, to brain fog, to autonomic dysfunction, to profound food and medication intolerances, things that get people labeled as whiners or 
are, are all kinds of things, but these are the patients who need an IFM practitioner who's going to be able to listen deeply, not presume that they're crazy despite this crazy range of symptoms, um, who can generate hypotheses and then know the right test for assessing those hypotheses and recognizing that there are multiple triggers for uh, mast cell activation. That includes not just the classic understanding of IgE, but their IgG triggers, infections, um, toxins, an altered microbiome, um, a lot of environmental stimuli, heat, chemical, mold, barometric pressure, um, a variety of foods, alcohol, Ex and this is really important one, excipients and medications. You know, lactose is readily found and often not reported. Um, there, and just like we get concerned about gluten and medications for gluten um, for celiac patients and the like, um, there's all kinds of things from polyethylene glycols to a long list of excipients that can, can drive things, requiring people often have to use compounded medications. And then there's that final topic of stress, environmental, physical, emotional, spiritual, um, dietary stress. Um, any one of those five forms of stress, um, uh, there's only one response, cortisol. And the higher the cortisol, the lower the threshold for mast cell reactivity. So imagine that you got to have a variety of feed forward loops here taking place um, where the actual physical stress um, can set off emotional stress, um, can set off more physical stress, you know, just kind of it's feed forward loop. And, um, and so oftentimes these are patients that require practitioners like IFM practitioners who can think in multi-systems, multi-dimensions at the same time, and not just focus on a single pill uh, as the answer for things. As a clinician, I've often thought that this uh, variety in the way that mast cell activation can manifest is a real clinical conundrum, because as you mentioned, these symptoms present across a variety of body systems. And I've always felt that functional medicine is uniquely well-suited to treat this type of patient because it's already part of our philosophy to look at all of those body systems, uh, the functional medicine matrix, how that's working together. I think that's the perfect lead into my next question for you. How does the functional medicine understanding of the importance of mast cell hyperactivity in several different conditions differ from a more conventional definition of mast cell activation syndrome? Okay, cool. This is a very important uh, topic and question, and, and I'll try to do my best job explaining this. First of all, there's multiple things we need to consider. One is systemic mastocytosis, um, and that uh, people can present with, again, a wide variety of vexing symptoms. Um, we often have um, a very high tryptase level, and um, often and may have a variety of skin manifestations or other manifestations that, uh, that will lead them to a hematologist and where maybe a bone marrow biopsy would be considered. 
Um, and that's where you're looking for a, a greater than 25% mast cell clonal um, expansion, uh, spindle cells under, uh, under microscopy. Um, and that's a whole very different story. So once that one has considered that, rule that out, we can move on. Then there's other, uh, another condition uh, called hereditary alpha tryptasemia, HAT for short. And that is like systemic mastocytosis. Um, there's can be, people have very high tryptase levels, but there is no evidence of clonal expansion. There's not, the mast cells aren't spindled, they're round, they're, um, and, um, and this is due to a very specific um, genetic variation that leads to overproduction of alpha tryptase. Um, and, um, but the people who have hereditary alpha tryptasemia, um, this can be autosomal dominant, can run in families. And, um, and until a 2016 article from researchers at NIH, these were people who are often, again, blamed, blaming the victim, unfortunately. These are mm -hmm. patients who are kind of were written off. But now, actually, um, we can say that um, these, very, these patients with very high tryptase levels have a wide variety of symptoms and uh, need to be taken seriously and can be addressed uh, by things that we'll talk about a little bit later. Mast cell is for people who have these wide variety of symptoms, a big long list of challenges, maybe a big long list of doctors, a lot of frustration, and, and unfortunately a lot of patients who have felt discounted or denigrated or dumped um, from the system. Oh, you're too complex, or you're a whiner and stuff. And this is where mast cell activation syndrome comes in, where, where okay, is there an aberrant mast cell activation? Conventional allergists have asserted that the diagnosis for this comes from measurement of tryptase within one to four hours after a, an event. Um, most often they would consider anaphylaxis an event. Um, anything less than anaphylaxis may not be considered an event. And the idea is that you have um, a baseline tryptase level and then a tryptase level which is 20% higher plus two, and that meets the definition. But as every viewer right now understands, um, it's like no one in the ER ever measures a tryptase, would ever consider that, it just never gets done. And, um, and this proposed definition really has very little clinical validation. And this is where patients then get stuck. Oh, your tryptase level is fine. You're fine. Uh, no, I'm not. Um, and so it's challenge of lack of clinical findings, lack of pathological findings, uh, results in clinical abandonment. The patient's a whiner. And, um, but we know that IFM practitioners are very, very thoughtful, deeply caring, and recognize and this is a key point, need to recognize that there is very limited data to substantiate the assertion that tryptase is a gold standard criteria for diagnosing MCAS. 
and I will stand by that absolutely. And the American Academy of Allergy and Immunology will vociferously um, um, disagree, but um, but I think people can read the literature for themselves and, and see kind of flaws in, in, in the argument that this is a gold standard test. So the bottom line is that tryptase is a poor biomarker. And so many of the things that we hear termed functional, functional GI, functional neurologic and stuff, um, really means idiopathic without abnormal measurements. And, and this is where um, IFM practitioners have a very important role to play. It's just like, mm, yes, we just haven't asked the right questions, we haven't got the right measurements. And, um, and so my greatest hope is everyone watching this will, won't consider at the start, patients are crazy, um, even though the symptoms may be very vexing um, and, and bizarre. Well, it can be really bizarre, um, but taking the time to listen deeply, generate hypotheses, get measurements, um, and can be really helpful, deeply helpful um, for people. Great. Well, I agree. The, the symptoms can be bizarre and frustrating, and I think that's where we really underscore the importance of remaining curious and asking the right questions. And you mentioned some biomarkers, and I just wanted to revisit this for a moment because uh, as a primary care doctor, sometimes I am at a decision point where I have to choose whether to send my patient to a specialist or figure out what I can do in a primary care setting. For, so, for someone like me that's doing primary care, what are some biomarkers that I might want to look for when determining if a patient has overactive mast cells? Is there something fairly simple that I can do just in my regular labs, well covered by insurance? Well, that is the great challenge. Um, many, there are over 200 mediators released when mast cells degranulate. Um, and only a few are measurable. Yeah. And even fewer are specific for mast cells. And to complicate matters, they're often very uh, volatile. And so at room temperature, they can disappear within a few minutes. And so testing is really complex. Now, an ideal panel would include a plasma assessment of prostaglandin D2 and histamine. However, that requires a refrigerated centrifuge and very few places can spend the thousands upon thousands of dollars to get a refrigerated centrifuge. So that may be just like, well, maybe that's not gonna happen. Certainly, Everyone can get a serum tryptase and should, and chromogranin A. Um, those are, are easily done by the blood test. Um, more challenging are 24-hour urine collections, or maybe even spot collections for N-methylhistamine, leukotriene E4, and this is a great one where your lab will love you dearly. 2,3-diner, 11-beta, prostaglandin, F2-alpha. Perfect for Scrabble. Um, but, um, but the challenge with these 24-hour urines is we're measuring very volatile things. So the collections need to be done in refrigerated 
containers kept in the freeze refrigerator on in an ice bath, brought to the lab on ice in some kind of container so that uh, there's been no room temperature uh, things, and then delivered to the person at the lab, uh, a hospital lab, uh, um, presuming that it's their very first day and they don't know how to handle these things. They cannot be left sitting around. They need to be frozen, uh, uh, separated and frozen and uh, prepared for transport right away. Um, it's different from any other urine test. And um, because of the, kind of the stringent um, specimen and handling requirements, um, there can be a lot of false negatives just because the hospital lab is going to send it to Arab or Mayo or somewhere, and there may be intermediates in there. Um, it's just there are too many hands um, handling these things, making a lot of false negatives. Um, but in your clinic, I would say, please, you know, you're already doing this, but just know that, yes, ensuring a very good vitamin D level, ensuring a normal homocysteine level, critical uh, for your patients um, with this. Um, and um, so um, a lot of times people would just say, you know what, um, this is a $2,000 set of labs that, are, that could have a high risk of false negatives. We'll just do the tryptase chromogranin A or, or, but if you have access to a refrigerated centrifuge or a center where that can be done, those additional measurements could be really uh, helpful. Very helpful. Thank you for that. I have two just quick follow-up questions. I have had patients come to me with a diagnosis of mast cell activation syndrome. It's been um, they've been diagnosed by their GI doc who's done an intestinal biopsy. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Or is that something that you're seeing often? Okay. Well, that's interesting. So thank goodness you're working with gastroenterologists who, um, are actually measuring, um, mast cells, um, in their, uh, GI biopsies. That's unfortunately rather rare in the United States. Um, but um, yes, and there's a debate over what is number of what constitutes excessive mast cells. Um, and also there's a debate as to whether excessive mast cells are meaningful. But um, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the author's name of a report that found that, um, that the mean number of mast cells per high power field found in intestinal biopsies was 13. And the standard deviation meant that anything greater than 20 per high-powered field was an increased amount. Um, and there's debate over kind of, well, if you have 40 per high-powered field or 60 per high-powered field or 80 per high-powered field, is that clearly a mass activation disorder? And that needs to be further evaluated whether the numbers um, um, are, um, are definitive or not. I think people say supportive. But you have to remember also that there may be other factors which determine mast cell presence. Um, and so, it's, so I would say that that would be a very important dimension that may not be definitive for mast cell activation. If you happen to be working with a gastroenterologist um, who is open to this, 
the request is an immunohistochemical stain for CD117. And that um, um, with reports on how many per hypower field for at least 10 fields. Um, and, uh, and that can be helpful. Under normal circumstances, um, that one would find low mast cells in the esophagus. Um, and um, and, and um, so that would only be part of the story. The other thing from a gastroenterology perspective is if you've got someone with quote, functional dyspepsia and their endoscopy comes back boring, that there's nothing seen, um, um, then that you need to think mast cell or if there is some kind of, uh, of gastritis present without any known trigger for that, uh, that may need to consider mass activations as a driver of that as well. I think this really speaks to what, what we teach in functional medicine also, which is really marrying any lab results to the clinical presentation. What is the patient experiencing? And so before we move on, I just want to ask one more follow-up question. If someone doesn't have access to all of this testing, whether they just don't have a lab that will do it or the patient can't afford the testing, but they clearly have symptoms of mast cell hyperactivity, is there a role or an appropriateness in treating them even without all of those lab results? Yes. In fact, actually, and, um, and, um, Empiric treatment makes great sense. Yeah. As long as you've ruled out other stuff, you know, you've ruled out the, the zebras, uh, so to speak, um, carcinoid and, you know, a variety of other things that uh, everyone would consider. There's a big long list of considerations. Um, but if you really certain that this is kind of the way to go and that the flushing or other things are not due to pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors and like, then yes, absolutely. Empiric treatment makes great sense. And, and, um, and first line treatment is H1 blockade and H2 blockade. And that can be done both by natural products as well as in a relatively inexpensive over-the-counter products. The challenge is many people who are highly, highly reactive um, can end up uh, maybe reactive to excipients found in the over-the-counter products. Mm. Second uh, caveat here is that um, Zyrtec doesn't equal Claritin, doesn't equal Allegra, uh, doesn't equal Quercetin. Um, some people respond really well to one and not to the others. And so, um, so it often makes sense if you kind of go the over-the-counter route, um, well, actually, everyone needs, you know, as much as possible, go the over-the-counter route uh, for cost. Um, then if people, you know, tried three weeks in Zyrtec and three weeks in Claritin, three weeks in Allegra, and then report back who's, which seems, seems best, um, um, can be helpful. I've been surprised by uh, the unpredictability of a very favorable response to one of, of these medications. I was going to ask, I, I tend to rely on pattern recognition, but it seems like pattern recognition isn't so straightforward with this one. And it's a little bit hard to predict responsiveness. Yes. And so that's where the relationship that is so important and 
um, and I be able to uh, speak with confidence and clarity and commitment to the patient to be with them, walk with them through this, these challenges is so important. And we may have to kind of like do kind of trial and error because there really is no predictability. And maybe there must be a better term than trial and error, just trial and retrial, <laughs> maybe, maybe best. Yeah. There you go. Well, you mentioned a few pharmaceutical and nutraceutical options that we can choose from, but I also want to talk about nutrition, which is really at the core of a functional medicine approach. I'm wondering if you have had any success with nutritional interventions, anti-inflammatory diets, elimination diets, low histamine diets, what kind of dietary changes are working well in your practice? Well, in my experience, uh, and having seen a lot of mast cell patients over the past six years, people may respond well to low histamine diet. So that's kind of a first line thing and being aware. So a nice story to illustrate this. A woman came in one day, she said, I don't know what's going on. We've been married 30 years. We love each other dearly. But every time my husband cooks, I am miserable. This big, long, long list of things. She said, I don't think he's trying to poison me. But I said, well, why does your husband cook? Well, he doesn't really cook. He kind of heats up leftovers. Oh, bing, 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 bing. And just kind of seriously, you know, just kind of, um, um, kind of eliminating leftovers as her meals made a profound difference. Um, and we know leftovers, particularly leftover meats and especially fish, uh, are just going to be high in histamines. The older the foods, the higher the histamines. Um, and there are a zillion different lists of high histamine foods. None of them agree. And so again, it's just kind of um, walking with people on food and symptom diaries and kind of listening to their experience, uh, trusting the patient before any technology. Um, becomes very important. But um, a lot of people have, um, have expressed concerns. Oh, I thought this kombucha and yogurt sauerkraut diet was really good for me. Well, maybe not. And, uh, and so, um, but after a low histamine diet, I also say it's worth considering a gluten-free or grain-free diet. Now, one of the things that people may not be gluten reactive um, there are about 10 other reasons why going grain-free might be actually quite good. One of them is nickel. And so I asked people about the, the nickel test. That is, uh, do you have problems wearing earrings? Do you have to be careful, silver or gold? Um, and can you wear costume jewelry? Well, um, it turns out that that's a great test for nickel reactivity. If costume jewelry drives one's ear crazy, um, with swelling and redness and crustiness and pain and itching and whatever, um, then um, we have to consider then that foods high in nickel um, may cause that same reaction in the gut. Now, how significant can this be? Well, so I, um, two years ago, I saw a woman and who for nine years had these unusual rashes on her body. Um, they would stay there for weeks. And sometimes she would go months without leaving her house because she was so embarrassed that they're being visible. She'd have to try covering up. 
In nine years, I kid you not, nine different dermatologists and at least a dozen biopsies, no answer. I said, oh, I see that you're not wearing earrings today. Tell me about that. Boom. Okay, we have a hypothesis. I said, okay, let's go two weeks, a no nickel diet or minimal nickel diet. And I kid you not, in two weeks, she's going back, they're gone, they're gone. For the first time in nine years, they're gone. So, so I, I take that as being, uh, very important. Now, of course, every IFM practitioner must know that you cannot be gluten-free and plant-based at the same time with, um, without paying deep attention to methionine levels. There is no methionine in a gluten-free plant-based diet, period. And you know how methionine is so important for methylation and for everything else. So you know, one has to pay close attention to that if one is going to be um, gluten-free, grain-free um, on, uh, on this. The third option to work with people is FODMAPs. And, um, um, and that we know that there's been one trial of a low FODMAP diet and IBS diarrhea patients that have shown reduction in plasma histamine levels. Maybe important, maybe not. We know that a high FODMAP diet results in visceral hypersensitivity and increased mast cell density in the colon. Important to know. But the challenge, of course, on a low FODMAP diet that it's very hard to get the food's intake that can support butyrate production in gut. And so we want to take low FODMAP diets, uh, we want to be just aware of that they're not meant for long-term um, care and that, that there may be other approaches to the same issue. I think the biggest one that we hear the most about is going to be the high histamine uh, diets and just being aware of what foods are very high in histamine, like chocolate and tomatoes and alcohols. And this is where we practitioners may be accidentally labeled Doxzilla because not my chocolate, <laughs> but, um, but in fact, that may be, uh, may be an issue. And the other thing I find really important is dose determines poison. So having a spinach salad with, uh, with cheese and olive oil vinaigrette and strawberries and glass of iced tea followed by a big fruit salad uh, dessert, it just may be too much. And so, so it doesn't mean that people can never have some things again. It's just really a matter of, of paying attention to total dosing. But we do know that histamine in foods can activate mast cells in the gut, causing direct gut issues and systemic reactions. And we get this feed forward loop. This is a, kind of a key concept. Mast cells degranulate, release histamine. Histamine comes right around and reactivates the mast cell. So mast cells are long living. Unlike a bee that once it's stung, it's kind of out of the picture, a mast cell can keep on making the pepperonis and keep on releasing them. And when you get this feed forward loop going on, you know, it's kind of, this is where people get stuck in a detrimental, non-resolving pro-inflammatory loop. And our mission is to kind of break that 
and, um, and that uh, um, often requires going beyond um, diet and beyond um, uh, nutraceuticals and including uh, more classic pharmaceuticals. Wow, so many clinical pearls for us to chew on there. And we've talked about the pharmaceuticals, nutraceuticals, dietary interventions. And I wanna make sure that we check in on the mind-body-spirit connection. That's so important in functional medicine. It's what we call the center of the matrix. And it's really important that we align all of those pieces for optimal health. And I know that in your professional background, you've studied the impact of spiritual concerns in medical care. And I'm wondering, how might you incorporate this uh, with a patient who presents with some mast cell hyperactivity? Are there mind-body therapies like meditation or yoga? I imagine some of those things might be really helpful to downregulate that inflammatory cascade that you're describing. Absolutely. And some of our patients have experienced traumas, physical traumas, emotional traumas, sexual traumas, traumas. Um, in the medical system. And, um, and this could put people into a kind of, a, again, a detrimental non-resolving pro-inflammatory loop. Um, and which then just, it's, again, it's this feed forward system. So the key point is when people have experienced abandonment, one, we want, need to actually affirm kind of this commitment to be with people and, and not have them re-experience any kind of traumas, which is a really important part of it. Likewise, when people are coming to you for a diagnosis, oftentimes they may get a little bit uh, sensitive if you're saying, well, um, let's um, talk about meditation. Um, and so one has to kind of weave this in as part of, of a, an overall picture. Uh, for things. And that's where I kind of talk, uh, again, going to pizza analogy where, you know, eat, there are many slices to make the pizza. And this one slice is to consider the role that the unconscious plays in all of this. And so I guess I need to share with you a story about the unconscious and how powerful this can be. I, this is why I share with a lot of patients. A number of years ago, I did a large randomized clinical trial on four herbs and a mushroom for menopausal hot flashes. You can imagine we were overwhelmed with people wanting to get into this study um, and, and um, enrolled 180 women. And um, you know, there's placebo, regular dose, high dose of Keishi Bukurokan, a, a traditional Japanese herbal medicine, which is leading prescription drug in Japan for menopausal hot flashes. At the end of the trial, we called women and said, um, we'd like to know what you're on. And they all said, oh, yes, yes. And I said, I never forget the third woman I, I talked with. I said, what do you think you were on? She said, oh, high dose, no question. I said, oh, tell me about that. She said, oh, for the first time in years, I wasn't kicking my husband. I wasn't throwing off the sheets. I wasn't changing the pillow, changing my nightgown, going to the bathroom. I slept great. And then... A couple of weeks after finishing trial, it all came back. I said, well, cool. Well, let's, let's open this envelope. I'm just wanting it to be a, a successful study. I'm just like, placebo. And she's like, mad at me. And then she's <laughs> like, oh, no, no. And just like, you've got a mind-body connection. 
this is a gift. This is a skill that can be developed further. But I think what's the, what I wanted to share with you is the role of the unconscious. And that is, we can reframe things, we can do all the cognitive behavioral therapies and the like, but it's the unconscious that plays a very profound role. And in this case, we had irrefutable physiological changes when she was asleep. So yes to yoga, yes to meditation, but I'm also very much in favor of these more shamanic approaches as, as well. Many people feel that they haven't been heard if the prescription, number one thing with prescription is meditation or yoga. Um, they can feel dismissed or discounted. Um, they're looking for a diagnosis and a cure. Um, so it's just part of the greater picture. The unconscious though, the ways of accessing that have been very powerful from things like the Gupta program, Annie Hopper's DNRS, polyvagal approaches. Um, I found that these more shamanic approaches have been deeply powerful and I have received, I think it's three letters now from patients unsolicited. And it's not like I get a lot of letters from patients, but unsolicited and I rarely get letters where in fact never gotten letters where people have used the word miraculous. But I think of three letters now where people have used miraculous around DNRS. Um, and, uh, and so that's an important part of, of things. You know, one woman said, I was down to three foods. Um, I was completely dysfunctional, blah, blah, blah. With this now, I'm now up to 28 foods. I have my, I have my family back. I have my job back. I have my life back. And, um, and, um, and we've gone full court press on, on the medical approaches, but it was the shamanic approaches where the great breakthroughs really came. So I see that as a very important part of the whole picture. And anything that will dial down cortisol, anything you can do to help people dial down the inner critic and dial up hope, dial up optimism, dial up uh, kind of perception that the future will be different than the present. Um, um, goes a long, long way to help people recover from these very vexing uh, uh, multi-organ, multi-system challenges. It's a really fascinating connection. And one observation I have, just listening to you talk, it's interesting how you said patients that have mast cell disorders tend to have some history of abandonment on their timeline or that's a common pattern that you see. And these are the same patients that come into my office and say, I've been through 10 different doctors and you know we haven't found a solution yet. And sometimes there's a sense of abandonment from the medical field in general. And that's an interesting connecting point I didn't make until right now. Oh, yes, yes. You play a very important role in having pe people rediscover a trust in humanity. And we are all profession, professionals in the service of healing, ideally. And that's why it's so distressing and so saddening, so aggravating um, when, um, we, when we encounter people. Um, you know, the suffering that comes through, through my door here is it's quite immense. Um, but I tell people, um, why do I love my job? 
I love my job because good things happen. When good things happen, I like to celebrate. In fact, over your shoulder there, there's a special bowl I brought back from Japan. And when, when good things happen, we ring it. And so I want you to focus on what it would take to ring the bowl with you. And I have to admit that I, there's barely a week that goes by where I don't ring the bowl at least once. And it's the most deeply meaningful deeply meaningful when that happens. And just because we encounter a world of suffering and we, it's, it's our role to kind of, to be in the service of healing. And I think every one who's stayed this long in the broadcast is actually committed to, to, to that. And, um, and so I wish all of you uh, the very best at, at, at bringing your full humanity in the service of healing. Well, thank you so much. That was a beautiful way to close our episode. And I certainly feel like it's been a good thing for me to share this time with you today. So thank you so much for bringing your clinical insights. It's just been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. It's it's been great fun. And uh, yes, I wish you and your patients well. So, So thank you. Want to learn more about mast cell activation syndrome? Join IFM and the functional medicine community June 4th and 5th for AIC 2022, an online event at a special price. Visit AIC.IFM.org for more information.